Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. The most beautiful man in the world, baby. Did you get it out? You done? Oh, not no, I'm not done. I, there's more where that came from, bro. We are here to discover and explore <laughs> what it means to be truly known. Right and uh, those of you who are watching on YouTube, you'll see that Kurt and I both showed up in black t-shirts today. And I think it was a subconscious choice because if we had a theme song for today's episode, I think it would be a Johnny Cash song. The Man in Black. Wow. And it would be, yeah. you know, I can't sing it because, not for lack of talent, but because we can't afford the song. <laughs> but I hear the train coming. You oh, I hear saying? the train coming. There you go. <laughs> so today we are uh, in episode nine of season six of the Being Known podcast, and we are talking about eternity in their hearts. And the temporal domain is what we're focusing on today. Yeah. So this is the uh, not the last episode of the series. We've got that coming next with our Q&R, our questions and reflections that we'll offer. Uh, but it's the last of the, you know, primary episodes that we're that we're doing. Primary episode? Like, is that even a thing? A primary episode? I don't even know. It sounded good when I, you I said just, it. I would have let it go. I just made it up. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I like Q&R. I didn't, know, I didn't know we were doing Q&R. That's... That's, yeah, that's good huh? too. Questions and reflections because I don't have the answers. Because we don't have the answers. <laughs> I don't, don't have the answers. <laughs> uh, you know, this has been this has been uh, a podcast series on the uh, you know developing wisdom. Yes, and uh, one of the things that I've developed in the wisdom is recognizing that. I'm not all that wise, and I certainly don't have the answers. So mm-hmm. I've learned some things. That is the first step towards becoming wise, I believe. Right. I don't know Jack. In any event, friends, this is the next to last episode of this series. Yes. And we've been talking about wisdom and what it means for us to become people of wisdom, that it's not just a thing that we acquire, although we can talk about it like that, but it's also something that we want to become. We want to become it in the way that we are thinking, of course, but also in the way that we are interacting with people. Uh, last episode, we talked about how you know our interactions with other people are an important part of uh, how it is that we become people of wisdom and recognizing that you know the minds of other people are always influencing our own and vice versa. And this last domain that we want to really explore has to do with something we've talked about before in general on, on this podcast, the, the idea of time. And how we as human creatures are uh, the only animals, as far as we know, that really have an awareness of the future that we will die. At least that's we, we become aware in, in the ways that other animals, as far as we know, don't know. And, you know, we like to say that we uh, kind of know that we were born, although in some respects, if you were to ask somebody to scientifically prove, do you know that you were born, that there was a time when you once weren't, you couldn't actually do that. And unless, you know, we'd find older people who would say like, no, I, I was there when the day you were born and the day before, like you, you weren't here. But the whole notion is that we think about our past. We, we want to know like, what was it like? I try to get how far back into my past can I go and, and imagine what was it like for me growing up in my home? And what are the things that I remember about where I went to school and all those things about my past? And we also anticipate a future. But in the middle of all this, we demonstrate that 
we have a relationship with time like no other animal does, like no other creature does. But we, unlike other creatures, have a wide range of things that we do in the time that we have on our earth, on, on, on the earth. And the writer of Ecclesiastes speaks to this. And we're just going to take a little time to read this, and then we're going to just walk through it a little bit. This is the third chapter of Ecclesiastes, the ninth through the 14th verses, and I'm just going to read this straight through. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. And our exploration of time and how that what that has to do with wisdom, um, I think is important because being one of those domains of integration of the mind is significant in that our relationship with time has a huge impact on how we are becoming, who we are becoming. And one of the reasons for that is that as the kind of creatures we are, we have the experience of, because of my awareness of time, I have the experience of becoming anxious. Hmm. I'm an anxious creature. And I become anxious because I'm ultimately aware of the possibility that I'm going to die. And I don't want that to happen. This, we like to say in, in, in our work uh, with patients, we say that like anxiety is ultimately this part of us that is aware or senses that we are alone, ultimately left alone. And so I might say, oh, I'm anxious about whether or not I'm going to lose my job, or I'm anxious about whether I'm going to, you know, not pass the test, or like I'm going to, like, you're an actor, you're going about to go on stage, I'm anxious... And, and well, what, well at the, we can say, well, I'm anxious because I'm going to get a bad review and so forth and all these kinds of things. And at the end of the day, what does that mean? It means like I felt this, this felt sense that I'm going to be alone in a box under a bridge. I'm going to be alone. People will know where I am and want nothing to do with me. Hmm. And so we see that that we can perceive time. We perceive a future is part of how we become anxious. And this is how it is then that if I want to become a person who lives wisely, uh, part of that wisdom includes how am I going to have a relationship with time? And there is a wise way to have a relationship with time, and there is a foolish way to have a relationship with time. And if I'm willing to practice having a relationship with time that is the way of wisdom, I discover that developing that kind of a posture to time actually is what enables me to become a person of even greater wisdom. We like to talk about the fact that when it comes to time, we humans have an option to travel on one of two tracks. Two, if you think about two different railroad tracks that are running. Track number one is a track that, first of all, requires very little effort for me to get on that track and ride that train. It's very automatic. And the, that track represents, when I think about, when I consider the past, I'm imagining all the things that I regret, 
all the things that I'm disappointed, all the, all the what ifs, all the if I had only. And when I think about the future, it is a track in which I become anxious. I worry, I ruminate about the future. If what if this happens, what if that happens and so forth and so on. And one of the common things that runs on that rail on that set of tracks, track one, is my shame. Somehow the shame that I wasn't enough for what I should have done, could have done in the past. What could have happened, could, shouldn't have happened to me in the past. And then into the future that somehow I'm not going to be enough to change things. And again, that track takes very little effort for me to get on. I just get on. I just ride that track all day, up and down, right? Just from one end to the other, effortlessly. And it doesn't even require a train station where I have to board it. I'm just on it. I'm just like, I'm just there. You're the conductor. Yeah. 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 I'm not just on it. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm on it. I'm running it. Right. I'm... Track two. It's a different kind of track. When we think about the past, when we think about track two, I want to have a posture of reflection. I want to consider, I'm not just regretting things. I'm not just automatically letting my shame run that. No, I'm being curious, not condemning, being curious in an attempt to actually be able to learn from that. To like, what, how do I want to do things differently? I want to ask not so much what's wrong with me, but what happened to me. Not so much then to blame people, but to be compassionate for those people who've been, you know, not enough for me in the past, but also compassionate for myself so that I can then be curious about what do I now want to do right here and now. So I'm looking to the past for the purpose of learning, for the purpose of being taught, for the purpose of things about my life being revealed to me. I want to acquire wisdom. And when I look into the future, I consider the future from the standpoint of planning. What do I intend to do on purpose that leads me into a place where I'm creating beauty and goodness? Now, there may be risks I'm going to have to take. I'm going to have to cross some thresholds where I'm going to do things that I'm like, that feel frightening to do, feel hard to do. But I'm going to do them on purpose because the vision that is driving that part, that, that future perspective is one of creating beauty and goodness. On track one, that's automatic. Both the regret of the past and the anxiety of the future are all disintegrating processes. No creation of beauty or goodness comes out of that. Mm. Track two, creation, new creation, is happening at every space along the track. I'm reflecting on the past in order to gather helpful information so that I can create new and different ways in the future. But the thing about track two is that there is a train station. I have to get on the train and it takes effort. I must do it with intentionality. Track one, no work whatsoever. I'm just on it, conducting it, like you said. Right. Track two, I actually have to get on the train on purpose. But when I do... It leads to me being able to live increasingly in the present moment. I'm, I'm going to be right where I am and where I am. Yes, I am reflecting on the past, but I'm right here reflecting in order to be right here so that I can do the next, take the very next step I need to take 
into that future of creation of beauty and goodness. So when we read in this text, what do workers gain from all their toil? I've seen the burden that God's laid on the human race. And the burden being that I live most of my life on track one. But we read the text and saying, but God is making everything beautiful in its time. And what we like to say is, look, the only time any of us ever have is right now. I don't have five minutes ago. I don't have five minutes from now. Like, I don't know. Like, who knows? I don't know. All I have is right now. And if I'm able to live in this present moment, certainly with an eye to the reflection of the past and the planning for the future, but both of which are activities that are taking place right now, I get to co-labor with Jesus to create beauty in the time that I have. And so when we read that text, he's made everything beautiful in its time. It's not just a matter of like, well, everything will eventually come into place. That's true. And everything has the potential for becoming an act of beauty if we are, if we're living where we actually exist in this present moment. And so there is, the writer talks about this burden of toil, which is like living on track one. But then in its time, we recognize noticing the beauty in the present moment. But in so doing, we are, if if I'm living present moment to the next present moment to the next, I am remembering acts of beauty that become those things that help me anticipate that more beauty is coming. And the reason I do that is because this eternity has been placed in my heart. This eternity, which is multiple things to a Hebrew who are writing these texts. The Hebrews, of course, would be referring to time. Eternity is in like ongoing passage of time. But mostly what they are referring to when they use the word, the words eternal life or eternity, the Hebrews are really talking about the quality of the depth of the life that God lives. And we get there. We like to say that we arrive by actually remaining where we are. How do we get someplace by remaining where we are? What we're really saying is that the life that I really long for, I can only have if I'm willing to focus my attention and be present. This moment. So how do we, how do you recommend that a person gets on the train? I mean, you know, if it's, if it's so easy to wake up and be on the wrong train, you're just automatically on it. Yeah. Obviously it's, it, it, it acquires intention and attention. Yeah. Well, you know, in our last episode, you were describing that meeting that you were Mm. in and you know, you didn't do that automatically. Right. Like you had to on purpose, you know, kind of set your intention and your attention toward that exercise. 
and then bring yourself to that space. And I think it's really, it's, it's really striking how difficult it is for us to practice being present in the only time that we have. Right. I mean, we, we humans have been, you know, uh, we, we've been, we've been trying to extend our lives for as long as we've been on the planet. There's a sense in which the first couple, Adam and Eve, you know, they, they were, they were only given, they were, they were just, it was just one thing that they didn't, they, were just, they only had one thing that they couldn't do. Right. Like me, I got like a lot of things I can't do. Like I can't drive, I'm not supposed to drive 50 in a 30 mile an hour speed zone. I'm not supposed to talk loud in the library. You know, I got like a tons of things that I'm right. not, like, they only had one. And this sense of how when the serpent enters with this wounding conversation, how quickly it moves from the first couple just simply living in the space that they had to then needing to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, to, and, and that it's, it was pleasing to the eye. Mm-hmm. It was going to be good for nourishment and it was going to be good for wisdom. But the issue was not, what was it good for? The issue was, how am I going to receive it? How am I going to acquire it? Am I going to acquire it by allowing myself to be given it on God's timetable? Am I going to learn and grow and to come into a place of knowing right from wrong on God's timetable? Or do I need to take it because I'm now so, I'm, I'm anxious about what, I, what I'm not going to have? And they couldn't wait. The question was not, will you become able to know the difference between right and wrong? The question is, how am I going to get there? Wisdom is not just about the acquisition of what, what the information is. It's how do I acquire it? How do I become the person of wisdom? You know, we've, uh, so, so we, we I, like, I am tempted, I, like, I, I, like, I live Genesis 3 over and over again, like, all day, every day. Like, I'm, I'm tempted to repeat it. And I want to take what I can in the time that I have because I think I'm running out of time. I know that I'm running out of time. And so, like, we aren't the first people who want to find ways to live forever. Um, I've recently been invited to be on an advisory board for a group of, for a nonprofit group that is working to really ask the important questions around artificial intelligence and faith. Yeah. Like, how do, you, how, do you, how do you explore, what is it, how does our faith speak to the quest, you know, for what artificial intelligence means and all those things. And like, dude, like, <laughs> I don't know if I am genuinely or artificially intelligent. I don't know. <laughs> I don't find myself to be necessarily intelligent. I, I like, like, I look around and I'm like, there are a lot of ways in which I am just not either of those, artificial or otherwise. I'm just not. I don't know nothing, but like, I know a lot of people who know a lot more about the world than I do. Uh, and I also know this, that this, this, this sense of artificial intelligence, it is, it is, a, it is one more way for, I want to take, I want to extend my life. I, I'm desperate for immortality because I'm terrified of death. I'm, I'm terrified. I'm terrified of being left alone. Like die, die, right? In the day that you throw up, you will die. die. This, this is what the Hebrew would say. Like you will like seriously die, which is worse than actually like, like my body being dead. And so 
And, and what we forget is that the most joyful, immortal life, if you will, the most like unto God that you can be is if you were to live the way God has actually made you to live as a creature, not as the creator, as a cre- which is right here and now. It doesn't get any better than our willingness to be in the present moment, being receptive to being loved, creating beauty and goodness. That's where immortality, if you will, rests. And this is what God has been offering to us. But instead, I want to make it happen and take it on. I want to take it and make it happen on my terms. I don't like practicing being a creature. This is a whole other conversation, but the whole notion of how we look for endless ways to tell the world that I am in charge of me. Mm. I have, I've not been made. So, you know, you, we, we can think of a whole range of different topics in which all the things that we want to tout as my, you know, self-identification, for instance, or my independence, for instance, it is a way, I mean, we're just, this is Genesis three over and over and over and over and over again. And like, and, and I, and the thing is like, I got my own ways of doing this. I don't want to be a creature. I want to be like Elohim. I, I, I am still listening to the snake. Dude, if you just, Kurt, if you just, if you just take, fill in the blank, Take when you glance at that woman, like you're going to take from her, even though she doesn't, she's like 30 yards away. Like you're just, you're just going to look at her. And like, if you know, and like the whole notion of like, oh, actually this is committing adultery. This is theft. This is violence that I'm committing. But like, I don't, nobody else would know. That's what I'm doing. Like that's what I'm, that's, I'm Genesis three. This is, this is, I don't want to be a creature. I want to acquire wisdom on my terms. And so it's, it's a matter of, and then we get, you know, Jesus says, look, this is the world. Jesus repeats this, 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 this. he repeats when, when, when he says in this world, you will have tribulation. I've spoken these four things to you so that in me, you will have peace in the world, not peace like the world gives, because in the world, you will have tribulation. And this is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, like, we have toil. We have toil. We have tribulation of all kinds. And Jesus is saying, in me, you have satisfaction. You have peace if you're here with me in the present moment. Gazing at me, gazing upon you, being present with you, even as you live out the Sermon on the Mount, even as you bear the fruit of the Spirit, which will be hard to do because you're running toward the light and the rest of the world might be running away from it and you feel like a deserter and it's hard to do this life together. But the way that we can be most effective at this is if we're doing this together with other people. I'm traveling with other people who are doing the same thing and not doing this in isolation. We come to discover that so much of our suffering is a function of this temporal domain. I, I suffer because, not just because I have pain, but because I perceive that this pain is not ever going to go away. I perceive this unending cycle into the future. 
you know, when we talk about, you know, we, we don't want animals to suffer, you know, when animal, and, and rightly so, if when, when we see the animal, the, the animal is suffering, it's important to recognize that animals can be continually in pain, but we can't describe animals as suffering in the way that human beings do. Because the animal actually doesn't have the same capacity to perceive, I no, could, okay. Yeah, that, no, I was just going to say, the animal doesn't have the forethought of grief, if you, you know. Oh, dude. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know I'm tempted. Yeah, but we're not going to go there. Yeah. You all have to just, you have to go, like, read the poem. You can find it on NPR. You can listen yeah. to Wendell Berry actually reading his own, I mean, speaking his own Right, the piece poem. of wild things. The piece of wild things, this yeah. forethought of grief. We don't have this. I mean, yeah. the, the animals don't, have, don't this. have this, right? Right. And this is and this is what we, this is what we care because we have the capacity to perceive time mm -hmm. in the way that we do, especially if we're running on track one, on the track where we live. You know, we tend to live most of our life. So, Kurt, do you remember when you were at Hope Hills Camp and they had the thing with the white pom-poms? Dude, oh my gosh. You know, the all of the volunteers line up. They, they line the side of the road, both sides of the road. And for every family that comes in, there's all this cheering, waving of pom-poms, signs, balloons, you name it. It's, I mean, the, the, the kids that are coming in have never really had anything like this. You know, to me, that's just a picture of being seen and, and allowing them to feel known in that moment. Yeah. I want to share a story about how this impacted one dad. It's, he, he wrote this into Hope Hills Camp after, just after attending the Hope Hills Camp. We have a five-year-old nonverbal son on the autism spectrum. In the world of disability, it's the little things that are the big things. The coffee was awesome. The community and stories you're, that you're helping to bring together are so, so needed. But it was the line of volunteers with white pom-poms that has gotten me choked up about a half a dozen times in the last couple hours. Hmm. My sweet baby boy is five. He is the joy of our lives. And he has never been invited to a birthday party. Hmm. He has never kicked a soccer ball the wrong way on the field and been cheered for it. We have barely even had birthday parties for him the last couple of years. But a line of strangers with pom-poms tonight, it took everything in me to hold it together. All I could do was look down at him as we walked through that line and try to avoid being a sobbing mess. For the rest of my life, it will be a moment I treasure. You know, Pep, that's just an amazingly beautiful story. And if you didn't know it already, Hope Heals Camp is a week-long retreat and year-round community offering rest, resources, and relationships to families experiencing disability. And we're very excited to be sponsoring five families to camp this summer. With your help, your tax-deductible donation will go directly to scholarshiping these families. So you can click the link in the show notes or go to Hope Heals dot com forward slash BKP. That's H-O-P-E-H-E-A-L-S dot com forward slash BKP 
and donate. Any amount is helpful. And together, we can help make a big difference. Can you tell me some, so you're on, you're on the train and you want to reflect on your past. You're in the present and you have one eye reflecting on the past. Can you tell me the kinds of questions or words that would be more of a reflection and less of a regret? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like I'm looking yeah. back. I know the mistakes that I've made, you know, but I don't want to live in the, the regret of it, but I want to mm-hmm. reflect on it and learn from it. So what would be some? Well, I think, I think the first thing I would say that's important is that I, I, would, I would invite our listeners that when we do this, that we don't do this alone. Right. That we're going to do this reflecting and this anticipation on purpose, this planning in the presence of others. There, I think there, it, it's not just what kind of questions, but the spirit of the question, of any of the questions that we ask, shame will want to work its way into the conversation and you will be jumping tracks before you know it. Yeah. And so we ask questions like, what happened to me? Or what did I do? But we're asking the question without condemnation. We want to be curious. It's hard to do, which is why it's helpful for us to have somebody else in the room because I'm going to ask, what did I do? And I'm like, oh, here's what I did. And I'm yeah. just I, like, I was a knucklehead. Yeah. I, I, I jump onto that condemning track. Yeah. But I really just want to ask, I, I want to know the facts. I want to know these things. And I want to be curious about like, well, what was, what, what was I feeling before that? And like, so I want to know, what did I do? Who were the people involved? What was the purpose of my doing that? What was I trying to protect, for instance? What was I afraid of? Mm. What were my longings? What did I really want in that moment? Yeah, I'm hearing very forgiving language. Yeah. Right, and because forgiveness is the order of the day, the the question, the question is not like God's not, I mean, it is as if God is continually pouring out a pitcher of cold water and we have to decide if we are going to take the lids off of our cups. It's not like we're coming to him with empty cups and saying, would you please give me some water? And he then has to sit and think about it. Jesus said, I am the living water. He who believes from me, within him will come forth wellsprings of life. I'm the living water. Like, I'm here with my pitcher, my hose. Like, I'm just pouring it out. Y'all just got to come and put your cup under it. But I know that there are there there are demands that are that 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 accompany this, right? Because he he wants to, he his demand is going to be for me to like he gives you know he, I give him an inch he's going to want to take a mile. But of course, not in the way that I'm afraid that has been taken of me, you know, growing up in my house. The mile he wants to take is yes, I would like to come into this room in your house also. And let's talk about that particular part of your life that you're pretty ashamed of. Let, let's talk about that too. I'm like, like, like really. Like that, we may have talked about this before, that the story in Mere Christianity where the chapter on nice people are new men and Lewis talks about you have this bungalow and you're really glad that Jesus has come to be a guest in your bungalow and you come home from work one day and like like the the porch is gone. You're like, what? 
and you discover like he has no intention of leaving us in a bungalow. He's building. I think. I think the the phrase that he these these uh, castle mansions is the phrase that Lewis uses. This is what Jesus is doing. These are the demands. Like a, you come in, my demand is that you let me reconstruct your house. I want to create beauty and goodness like you have never seen. But to do that, I have to stay on track too. I have to get. I have to go to the station. And I have to assume that that forgiving language is waiting for me. And I'm going to do that with somebody else. I mean, this is, this is what happens with you and me, right? I, mean, yeah. I have to do that with somebody else. So somebody else becomes the voice of Jesus, the body of Jesus, who shows up and teaches me that even now, Jesus is redeeming my past in the present moment. The Good Friday and Easter and Ascension sitting at the center of time. Everything rotates around it. And uh, we are called to practice allowing others to walk with us into those questions that you just we just explored. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, I create more and more and more, I, I collect moments of being loved, especially in the places where, like, I thought, like, that that just wouldn't be possible. I mean, this is, this is Mark 5 with the woman with the bleeding problem, right? She comes onto the scene, and she's got one, she's got one mission. I just got to get the bleeding stopped. And he's like, I'm not, like, oh, no, I'm coming for everything. Yeah. Right? She, he, because he's like, the time in your life that I have to redeem is not just your future so that you no longer bleed going into the future. I'm coming to put you on the second track. We're going to into your past. We're going to all those visits to the physicians. We're going to all those places where no one has called you daughter because of your barrenness. We're going to rewrite that starting from the beginning. But it's hard for me to have that happen if I don't have an embodied experience of it. Right. It's not enough to hear a sermon from the pulpit. Yeah. And so this collection of moments like this become the hard deck of hope. I begin to imagine hope, a future that is different and new because of the things that are happening now that I can remember, out of which I then anticipate that future. And so we, we talk then, ultimately, that in the course of the time that we have practicing living on track two, on purpose, in community, that wisdom becomes a function of becoming deeply known and loved. We become a professional creature. We're not amateurs. We're gonna be, we're, we want to become professional creatures. Right. Yeah. And then we can leave the time, we can leave time to God and be receptive. And with that in mind, I, uh, I just want to mention our, our artistic uh, offering for this episode. So uh, last week I was in Vancouver and uh, was at a place called Regent College where they have there in their library one of what is called the Heritage Editions of the St. John's Bible. And we don't have time to go into 
all of this, but the St. John's Bible was artistic endeavor that was begun by, I forget his first name, Jackson, I think is his last name, who was the official calligrapher for Queen Elizabeth, who connected with this abbey in in Minnesota. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a Benedictine abbey, St. John's Abbey. And in the early 2000s, late ni- between the late 90s, mid to late 90s and early 2000s, they began this enterprise in which for the first time in... I, I want to say like perhaps close to a thousand years for the first time you have hand calligraphied and what they call illumined, mm-hmm. not even illuminated, but illumined a, a, an illumined Bible. There are seven volumes that hold the entire canon calligraphied in the NRSV and every page there's some kind of artistic expression on it. And it was done on vellum, which of course is, I mean, I, I learned, I didn't want to die. Yeah, vellum, I'm yeah, vellum. Yeah, vellum. Yeah. I have no idea what vellum is. Calfskin. And it is literally paper thin calfskin that has been so thinly, whatever you do, right, that it is translucent. And so the detail was such that, uh, when you, even though the ink doesn't come through, the light does and you see one page on the back of another page. You see it, it, it comes through, but not because the ink is penetrating it, but because the light that comes through. And so Jackson, apparently, when this was, I think that's his last name. I'll have to double check on that. I, I could be wrong. It could be Sweeney. I don't know. No, it's definitely not Sweeney. Maybe you can check. I, I, I forget. I forget who it is. Last name. I should have should have known this. We'll we'll, we'll figure. We'll, we'll we'll come back to it. But the the point is, is that there are two hundred and ninety nine heritage edition copies of the single seven volume set. And these heritage edition copies, you can kind of quote unquote rent them out for a period of time if you want. But there have been a number of them that have actually been purchased outright by particular institutions. And uh, someone very kindly purchased this heritage edition for Regent College. And so, like, just a couple of things about it that, that are just germane to our topic here. That in so doing, in, in doing this project, what this does is, like, it goes back and calls forth a skill set from practitioners who are at the top of the world's game. It is Donald Jackson, by the way. Donald. Donald Jackson. Yeah. Thank you. And and it's old, mm-hmm. dude. Like the way, like it is the it is the way the ancients did this. And like I had like I the curator. She uh, she opens Genesis. I, I I just start to weep because it's not just any book, but it's this sense that God's notion of beauty is as old as the world, and His longing for us to look like that book 
is as old as the world. So this notion that like you have something from the quote-unquote past whose beauty speaks to any time, because in the moment that you're reading it, in the moment that you're with it, it doesn't matter that it would have been done like this a thousand years ago. Like that beauty is just going to, it doesn't matter who sees it, when they see it. This is how God shows up. This is what beauty does. The other thing, <laughs> they made mistakes. These calligraphers made mistakes. And when they made mistakes, this is the, uh, just just blew my mind. When they, you know, you'd think like, oh my gosh, we're just gonna have to like take that page out, do it, start over. Like, no, give me some new vellum. Yeah, like like they, they no they they can't do it because the way that they're like putting these pages together, like you can't do this. Right. And on this high grade, co- oh here's another aside. Jackson noticed that when they were printing these with this high, you know, the the the, the heritage, it's just high grade printing on high-grade cotton pages, it's not vellum, he noticed that when you would turn a page, you couldn't see the ink coming through. And he wanted it to be so like the original, he said, we got to start this over. The cotton has to be thinner. I want us to be able to see what's coming through on the other side without it bleeding through. I mean, this is the attention to detail that they took. But when they would make mistakes... What would they do? I got, I got a picture of this. I'll have to show you sometime. They would simply artistically incorporate the mistake into the text. It would often come in some way where they like they left out a line or two or they left a word here or, or two there or whatever. And they would then have some artistic expression that would insert. Like they'd take, oh, these four words were supposed to be there. We're just going to draw a little line and have a bird that's flying, carrying the line to the bottom of the page, and then they just write the words down there. Like, every rupture was repaired. Yeah, talk about reflecting and not regretting. Dude. Right? Dude. Dude. That's a great picture. I mean, and, and, you know, making beauty out of ashes, making beauty out of the biggest mistakes that, you know, I mean, it, w- without the mistakes, you wouldn't have that beauty. There's so many things. It's unbelievable. That's very cool. That's very cool. So we, we're, we've got the link to the website for St. John's Bible. It's uh, stjohnsbible.org, but we will have that in our show notes as well. So you can just click on it and go take a look. It's, it's, uh, it's gorgeous. And thanks for sharing that, Kurt. For our application this week, we would like you to take a brief inventory of how you tell time. Consider what track on which you most often find yourself traveling. Then, at least once a day, take the time to be aware of which track you're on and then pause to go to the train station and board track two and reflect on how it feels to be more on track two than track one, where you are present and reflecting on the past, not regretting the past, and planning for the future. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we really believe that as we do this kind of work, that, and that exercise, that uh, we discover how God wants to 
enhance our relationship with time in order for us to be people of greater wisdom. Mm. Thank you for this time, mm. Kurt. And, right on, uh, man. Appreciate you and look forward to the next time we can be together and do this again. Right on. And My I pleasure. would love, for those of you on YouTube, but we're going to invite Amy to join us now. And she's going to bring some real wisdom to the table. <laughs> man, the. The audience has been waiting. Please. I mean, they've been listening to the artificial intelligence for the last oh my God. <laughs> 55 minutes. Now they get the real thing. That's some real intelligence. Come on, Amy. Love you, buddy. Love you, man. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simon. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.